Welcome to Choate Holland Stewart's Cross Border IP Issues podcast series, focused on highlighting a variety of legal and business considerations for companies considering international expansion or doing a deal with a company that is based in another nation. Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for Choate Holland Stewart's Cross Border IP Issues podcast series. This is session one. Uh, my name is Brian Reese, and I serve as co-chair for the intellectual property practice at Choate Hall and Stewart in Boston. My practice uh, actually specializes in biotechnology and medical devices primarily. In addition to normal prosecution, I also deal a lot with IP-related transactions. And actually, it was some of those experiences that led to this, the series that we're kicking off today. And I'm joined by John Rearick, who is one of my partners in the intellectual property group. And John's a a partner that specializes in small molecule work for both early stage and clinical stage uh, drug development companies. And he also does quite a bit of IP diligence for investor clientele, some of whom are based in the U.S. as we are, and some who are based outside the U.S. So hopefully we can combine our experiences today to give you a little bit of insight into the IP issues that get raised when folks are crossing borders. So what does that mean? Cross-border can look many different ways. What we mean when we say that for, for this series, it's a few different ways. So one, we're, we're talking about companies that are entering the U.S., but they're not based in the U.S., whether that's the U.K. or Japan or some other place. We're also talking about companies that are U.S.-based and are looking to expand overseas. And then the third aspect here is talking about transactions that happen across borders. And so very often what we'll have are clients that are based, for example, in the U.S. doing business with a Chinese company or some other company that sits elsewhere in the world. So we're going to do our best to provide tips and considerations for folks that are in all of those situations. Now, <laughs> we're never going to get all of the issues. And so we certainly uh, encourage you to reach out to either John or myself or any of the other folks that are going to join us for future sessions. Um, just a quick intro to what we plan to talk about. Um, we're, we're going to be talking about just what patents are in general, what, what they are, what they are not. Uh, we're going to be very light on that. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some of the restrictions the government put on filing a patent application and where you can do that and, and some of the things that you may need to do. Also, how patents are treated when you're enforcing them, how you get issued claims, which are the things that you can enforce. We're also going to touch in future sessions, hopefully, on exclusivities. So everybody loves really long patent terms. And and while patents are normally limited to 20 years under uh, the biggest treaty, there are ways to extend in certain jurisdictions. And so we'll have folks talk about that. We'll also talk about tax implications, which I think is one of the biggest topics that all of you are wondering about. For those of you that have been through it, valuing IP can be very, very tricky. And so we'll have a session directed specifically to that as well. Uh, The other things that we plan to talk about are general corporate considerations, entity type, and and how that affects how you can structure deals and or expansion. Uh, Trademark session, brands are a worldwide thing, but they are not handled with a single application in a single jurisdiction. And then we're also going to have an additional session. I think John and I are going to come back and talk to you a little bit about ownership and IP-related transactions specifically. So we'll kick off the session now uh, with what are patents? And so patents are a way of protecting new inventions, right? Everybody, I think, has a feel for what they are and what they are not. Just a quick plug on patents in general, where they are, they provide negative rights or right to exclude others from doing something. They're not an affirmative right, or as some folks refer to it or think about it, a license to do something. And that has implications that are a little bit beyond the session today. But one of the things that you want to take away is that despite there being treaties, 
that talk about international patent protection. There is no such thing as a worldwide patent. And that has implications for how you draft the patents, how you prosecute them, and then what you have to do, and, and quite frankly, the money you're going to have to spend at some point in order to get broad rights across the world. So, John, maybe you can talk a little bit about your experiences and, and some of the issues your clients face as to this aspect. That's right, Brian. Exactly what you just said. There's no worldwide patent. And so we're always in this realm of trying to figure out at a certain stage during our portfolio development of where are we going to file this patent application? Because you do need to file it in each individual country or sometimes each individual jurisdiction, depending on what part of the world we're talking about. And, and I think one of the main things that needs to be considered up front is your strategy of protection around your product flow. And by that, I mean, thinking about sorts of questions like, where are you going to sell your product? Or where will that product or the related components that go into it be manufactured? Those could be key jurisdictions for filing. And it may be in various parts of the world. It may be in certain blocks of the world. But those are the sorts of things that in terms of protecting where our product, you know, for our client or where, where your product, um, when you're thinking about your own products, exactly how you're going to cover those. Another thing is to think about where will competitors operate or maybe more precisely precisely where could they operate? Since like you said, Brian, patents give you the right to exclude others. This is really a, a very important consideration because competitors might have a very different geographic footprint than you do. It's really easy sometimes to get focused on your own operations and sometimes not consider the fuller picture of who's out there, what they're capable of. For example, there might be a well-known manufacturer that could partner with another company and then move into manufacturing something they previously didn't. So, so you know, kind of thinking broadly on, on that front. And then also from a freedom to operate standpoint, we need to consider what sorts of patent protection competitors might have of their own in these sorts of different jurisdictions. So this territorial nature of patenting also really affects the cost of, of obtaining patents because the number of filings in each country have different costs and then you just start multiplying that, that out, whether there could be other costs related to, for example, translations or, or other administrative items like assignments that can really start to drive up some of the costs of certain formalities. But typically, in the life sciences, we're filing in multiple jurisdictions to cover the big markets. For example, US and Europe are kind of at a minimum. And then you could go really high from there, particularly if you're looking at the, the way that Big Pharma might approach something that looks like it could be a blockbuster and you might be filing in 40 jurisdictions or more for a single patent family. Yeah, that's a lot of really good information, John. Thanks. And I think, you know, the, the takeaway is that we try to tell the future in patent law and it's not an easy thing, particularly in an area such as life sciences where the regulations are changing continuously. There's a lot of resources that go into testing a particular therapeutic. And so it, it's no small thing to try to think about where where am I going to manufacture them? And what are the competitors doing? And, and knowing that the competitive landscape is itself quite a dynamic beast. I think that's a really important um, issue. One of the key considerations to take away from today's session is that the patent process is a really long one. And, and many of the considerations John just mentioned, uh, such as what your competitors are doing and where you think you're going to manufacture, where your big patient groups are, they're things that you really need to try to map out ahead of time. And of course, any company is going to have a good strategic plan. But this maps to IP in, in fairly unique ways to where you may file a patent application. Everyone's very excited about data that you got recently. 
And then two to three years and sometimes more can go by before this thing gets examined, before you start getting these issued claims. And so trying to think that far in the future, especially when you're just getting data that leads you to get excited about a particular program, it's not a small thing. So it's impossible to really think that you're going to be able to consider all these issues and be right 100% of the time. But one of the things that we suggest is structure your application in such a way that your particular innovation is going to be wildly successful and you're going to sell this thing worldwide. If, you, if you're not, uh, and most people aren't, that's that's really not a problem. You don't want to miss the boat. You'd rather over-prepare a little bit. And there's a little bit of cost incurred up front in preparing a good application, but there are certain things that you just want to do and sometimes folks fail to prepare. A couple examples on that. So in the United States, you can use post-filing data and we're pretty generous in terms of the amount of disclosure we need to have in an application and, and being able to present claims from that disclosure. That is not the case everywhere. And particularly in Europe, and those of you listening from Europe, um, you're already laughing, I'm sure, where the level of support just has to be significantly higher in many cases. And so you need almost verbatim support. So if you're considering, say you have a three-component therapy, and there are multiple choices for each of the three components that you have. Well, uh, in the United States, if you list the different components, uh, each in their own section or together, uh, that can be enough to present claims. If you're in Europe and you don't mention specific combinations, picking from multiple lists can be really hard. And so if you're reviewing a patent application that your attorney drafts, you might see all the components and think you're really good. Uh, and in some cases, you will be. In some cases, you won't. So you need to be really careful thinking about those sorts of things. Another aspect that really differs between the U.S. and, and most other jurisdictions, actually, are method of treatment claims. So any claim that touches the human body is a no-no in many jurisdictions outside the U.S. But it is fair game in the United States. And so depending on which way uh, you might be expanding, you certainly want to have support for claims in that area, knowing that uh, you may or may not get them. And the converse of that is diagnostic claims, where in the United States right now, very hard to get. Uh, and outside the U.S., we're seeing folks that actually are a little bit more successful getting those. And so you want to think about all this when you're telling the story that is in your patent application. Not not an easy thing, but if you if you follow a few best practices, it leads to good success down the road. And then, as John mentioned, you, know, you may be filing in many jurisdictions, and there's a very significant cost, especially if you're filing in, I guess, 40 jurisdictions. Many of my clients file more modestly than that, but the translations and other issues really do add up. And so when you're considering your IP budget with or without expansion, those costs are going to significantly increase over the years. So just a good thing to plan for. So John, uh, in addition to the patent filing itself, the filing strategies, and then some of the drafting considerations we talked about, what are some other things you think clients should keep in mind? Brian, I think one thing that comes up sometimes almost as an afterthought, unfortunately, is, is the need to think about whether a foreign filing license is required. And so let's just stop for a minute to explain what is a foreign filing license for people who may not have heard of that. Really, the take home for this is that certain countries may require permission before you file a patent in other countries. And this requirement can be based on technology or the inventors and or the location that the invention is, is actually developed. And the general idea is that some countries don't want inventions or secrets going abroad without prior government blessing. And you can obtain this approval through a license, but you need to apply for it and have it granted prior to filing the application abroad. In general, the consequence of not getting this license is that a patent won't be valid in that country that required the license that, that you didn't 
get. So that that's what we're really looking at here in terms of non-compliance. In the U.S., really, this most commonly occurs when you're filing a PCT alongside one or more applications in a non-PCT jurisdiction, which there aren't very many of those, but you know, places like Taiwan or certain South American countries, for example. And you're filing in this non-PCT jurisdiction for an invention that was made in the U.S. And I've seen this arise in, in another context recently as well, where the entity was outside of the U.S. and they filed a foreign priority application. And it was only after that that they discovered that there was a U.S.-based inventor who should have been added on the foreign priority. That immediately raised an issue because... Of course, there was no U.S. foreign filing license obtained, and the later U.S. patent filing would potentially be jeopardized. Of course, you can apply for one of these foreign filing licenses in the U.S. retroactively, but that's never the position that we want to be in, kind of trying to claw back for that and ask for forgiveness. It's actually really easy to get these foreign filing licenses in the U.S. The, the process is, takes about three days, and it's, it's, it's quite easy and not expensive. As I mentioned, this is treated differently by different countries. And just quickly by way of example, this is not exhaustive, but the requirement only applies to government employees in Canada. In the UK, it applies just to issues of national security. China approaches it a little bit differently and applies to inventions that were made in China. In fact, I think we just saw our first invalidation of a Chinese patent where the foreign filing license was not properly obtained. And then India is another one that we see sometimes where this applies in cases where the inventors or the companies reside in India. Yeah, thanks, John. That's, that really is a great tip. It's very easy to overlook the need for those foreign filing licenses. And so that's a great flag. It doesn't apply everywhere, but when it does, you need to be very mindful. Uh, I think we're, we're running out of time for this particular session, and we just wanted to thank you for joining us today. I think the one of the key bullet points is changing jurisdictions, entering a new nation is not a small task. There are a lot of considerations there around. And what we wanted to do today was just give you a little flavor for some of the IP-related considerations. Spending a little bit of extra time on the front end of a transaction or planned expansion will really pay dividends later on, as well as, of course, looping in your counsel early and, and letting them know what's happening so they can help guide you. John and I will be back in the next session to talk about a variety of things, including ownership of IP. There are very different defaults in different jurisdictions, as well as some of those IP-related transactions here that will also have sessions on taxation, exclusivities, or extension of patent term, litigation, trademark, and hopefully a few others. So we thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit www.choat.com. You can also listen to additional podcast episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. The information presented in this recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice for a specific situation. If you wish to obtain legal advice, you should retain an attorney and explain the facts of your particular situation 